Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. If you're there, um, go ahead and let me know. Okay. It says, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, everyone say the word of God. He was standing by the lake of Gisenaret, uh, which is the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two boats by the lake. We're by the lake. This is why I love this passage. Saw two, two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Everyone say washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's or Peter's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down, and he taught the people from the boat. So Jesus sees uh, an opportunity, right? The Sea of Galilee, from what I've told, can uh, function like an an amphitheater. So Jesus looks at the geography, gets in a boat, and he uses the dynamics of water and sound and the topological whatever features of the Sea of Galilee to amplify his his voice. Then it says, when he had finished speaking, He said to Simon, put out into the deep. Everyone say, into the deep. And let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. Verse 7 They signaled to their partners, everyone say partners, in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And then verse 9, Jesus does something remarkable here, or actually verse 10, actually verse 11, but we'll get there. For he and all who were with them, Luke gives us some commentary, were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men And when they had brought their boats up to land, they left everything. Everyone say everything. They left everything, and they followed Jesus. Amen. Could you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father, I thank you uh, for your grace. And, uh, Lord, we just thank you that you're with us this evening. Lord, I just thank you for strength in my body to communicate your word. Lord, we just thank you. I'm, I'm just really, I, I just have faith as our eyes are closed. At the end of this message, Holy Spirit, you're going to fall. I just love Kanye's new song, Holy Spirit, Fall. And I don't even know why I mentioned that. But it's totally relevant. And I believe, Holy Spirit, you're, gonna, you're already here. So I walked into uh, the end of worship. You could sense your presence. You're already at work in the hearts of your sons and daughters. And I think you just set the atmosphere right now by the power of Jesus. And I just thank you at the end, Father, as we pray and we just open up our hearts to you, that you would do a fresh work in us. You would do a deep work in us. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. So, If you want um, God to launch you into the depths, how many of you want that? Come on, somebody. How many of you want God to, like, launch you into the depths? If you want more of God, how many of you want more of God? 
Not like, and what I'm, what I'm suggesting is not like you have like less of God, but obviously you can't exhaust God and his goodness. And, and so if you want more of God, right, um, there are a few things, a few non-negotiables um, that, that we have to uh, talk about. Number one, are you ready? If you want more of God, if you want to go to the depths, if you want to figure things out more, how many of you want to figure things out more? Right. You want flourishing in your life. Number one, this is so prosaic, I get it, but just go with me. You have to understand tonight that you can't have it all. If you want the depths of Jesus, you can't have it all. Let me say something really quick about depths, and then I'm going to get back to that, that thought really quick. Uh, it's interesting. Um, I, it's funny. I, I'm feeling old lately. I quipped to my wife a couple days ago. I'm like, babe, man, I just feel like I'm 44. I look like I'm 26. Can I get an amen to that? No. But I was feeling it a couple days ago, and I remember I just, I look over at my wife, and I go, babe, I just feel really old. For example, um, I woke up about 7.45 in the morning, got a cup of coffee. All my kids were, like, watching Baby Shark, which I absolutely hate. <laughs> I go out in my backyard, and for five minutes, no joke, I'm looking at the grass. For five minutes, I'm looking at the grass. And I'm pleased. I've never felt this. I've never felt this emotion before. I felt pleased at the grass. <laughs> and now I know. Isn't it funny? Like, like, I remember when I was a young man, I drive through neighborhoods pretty fast. And I'm looking at old people and they're just looking. I think I know what they were thinking. And I remember I came in like, babe, I'm pleased with our backyard. I'm content with grass, right? And I'm like, I feel so old. So what I'm about to say probably is a little bit dated because I think most of you weren't even born. But have you heard of the movie Jurassic Park? So this is all about depth and this is all about our cultural moment. It's funny, um, in the original Jurassic Park, how many of you have seen it? Right, you're, you're, like when we, it was early 90s, and I remember I saw it in the theater, and I was just like, the cinematography at that time was outrageous, and so everybody's just blown away by what they're seeing. And kind of at the beginning of the movie, um, after they land on Jurassic Park, and they get to like the central area, I don't know if you remember, you have the Velociraptor cage, you remember that? Some of you don't? Uh, and then you had this conversation, kind of this tete-a-tete between uh, the game warden, and um, a few other people. I don't even know the characters' names. But what's interesting is what he says. He says in his conversation with these others, other people, and again, this is totally relevant to what we're talking about when it comes to where we're at in our cultural moment and to depth. He says, it's funny that these velociraptors, they're really smart. And what they're doing is that they're attacking the fences when the feeders come. And then he continues, and I wrote this down, he goes, systematically, they're striking various sections of this cage that they're in, right? And it's all, um, they can't get out, and they're stuck. And then this is what the game ward, I don't, I don't remember the character's name. This is what he said. He goes, they're testing them for weaknesses. These velociraptors are testing the cages for weaknesses, and I think one of the characters asked the question, why? And then he responds, well, because they want to get out. I think that's the moment that we're in right now. I think, and I, I just don't even know how to say this without getting a academic and philosophical, and I don't want to do that tonight because tonight I'm too tired. But I'm just going to say, the dominant culture is framed, I'll say it this way, by the idea that you can have significance without transcendence, right? 
So this is what we call a thin view of God. Like, we don't care. And I, I, I use Epicureanism as another way of talking about this. But we have a thin view of God. If God exists, hey, that's great, right? Uh, we treat him as like a, maybe um, a therapeutic deity who makes us feel better about ourselves. But really when it comes down to it, uh, we still can have significance without any sort of relationship with God. What scholars call that is eminence. And so the secular world is living within eminence. Eminence is, think of it like a, I wish I had a drawing here. I want to go totally professor on you. It's like a box. It's like a cage, right? And people for some time have been living. We're talking about secular people for some time have been living with the assumption or the definition of reality that they can have meaning and purpose and hope and significance without transcendence and without God himself, and yet not just the past year, but you can sense it and you can feel it. Everyone say feel it. You can feel it in our cities. You can feel it in urban dense areas that I've been to. You can feel it in the country. You can feel it on TV. You can feel it on YouTube. You can feel it on the news. You can feel it in conversations after conversations that you're having with your homeboys and your friends that people, even though they bought into this assumption about reality, that they can have significance and meaning without transcendence and without God. They, they just deep down, they want something more. Eminence and Netflix and YouTube and just ordinary life without God and even good health care and, and Tiger King. That's so dated. I didn't even see it. So I don't even know what that is, right? And all these things that we do day in and day out, we are realizing that they are just not enough. And so like velociraptors, it's a feel. I, I could give you science to quantify this, but just the feel. Have you felt this? People are like velociraptors testing eminence. What does that mean? It means that our culture is so so Christ haunted. You are haunted by goodness and beauty. There might be a few of you, you're like, ah, I don't know if I believe in God or not. That's totally fine. But the reason why you do what you do and you go to nature or some of you who follow Jesus, you're up here is because you're haunted by beauty, by goodness. Ultimately, as followers of Jesus, we know what that's filtered through, and that is filtered through Jesus, who is the King of Kings, who is the Lord of Lords, who is the creator and sovereign over creation. So people like Velociraptors, we had a storm last night, and we have now, we're spraying. We're all getting, we're all getting the chem, chemtrail tonight, right? Whatever that is. They're all, there's this sense, and I know you have it, we want something more. One Charles, uh, one scholar named Charles Malik, he's a Lebanese Christian thinker. He says, are you perplexed? He said this before the pandemic. Do you feel the crisis in your heart? Do you feel something profoundly wrong, both in your life and the affairs of this world? Do you, do you as, it, as it were, hold your heart in your hand, fearing that in almost the next moment something terrible is going to break out? both in you and the world? Have you reached the state where you simply do not quite trust the processes of the world, including nature, science, economics, politics, and even the best goodwill, suspecting that there is in them a flaw somewhere, a false note, an eminent principle of darkness, destruction, and death? And there's, you get a sense there's a lot of people out there in the world that has this feeling, and they want something more. So... How do we, without becoming formulaic tonight, how do we from this text, how do we enter into the depths? How do we enter into all that Jesus has for us this, this year? So I bring this full circle. Well, number one, you cannot have it all if you want to be launched into the depths with Jesus. What do you mean, Chris? Well, let me say it this way. Most of us know that we can't follow Jesus and be a part of this rescue project for creation. We can't follow Jesus and be a part of the redefinition of power and social arrangements. 
We can't follow Jesus and be a part of the transformation of people's lives, which, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. I think we all want to be a part of that. We can't be a part of that, and most of us assume this, and at the same time, go to Vegas, rob some banks, do some cocaine, like tons of cocaine, and hire prostitutes. So I can, most of us in this room understand that, right? So let's put that to the side. So I'm not talking to that group of people who think, yeah, I can have Jesus and have it all, right? What I'm saying is a little bit, and I'm going to try to make this as clear as possible. When I say you can't have it all this year, what I'm saying is the dominant consciousness of our culture tells us that you can have every experience, And the dominant culture tells us that when you feel something that feels good and right, just relent to the tension. So what I'm saying here, when you can't have it all if you want to go into the depths, is that what I'm trying to say is that you have to build up tolerance for tension in your life. You have, if you're serious about following Jesus and the kingdom of God and shalom, which is this beautiful world that means that all is right with your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with everybody else, and your relationship with creation itself. You can't have shalom. You can't have any of that if you don't build up tolerance for tension. In fact, the first part of this story is a drama which is framed around tension. So Jesus, in verse 2, it says, he sees two boats by the lake, and there's fishermen, and they've gone out of them, and they're washing their nets. You can feel the tension. It's palpable. And then getting into the one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. First thing, the first tension is that they were washing their nets. This isn't like cleaning a room. Washing your nets means that you are done for a significant part of the day. To wash your nets is kind of like when my wife and I have to take our 17,000 kids, put them in a car, right, and we have to, like, get all of our stuff and then drive them to the park. If you don't know, it takes us about four hours to do that, right? That's what washing your nets is like. So feel the tension. Feel the inconvenience. Feel the ordinariness of this. Simon is in a moment of contestability. Jesus knows exactly what he wants to do. He wants to do a miracle through Simon. He wants to give Simon more. And he asks Simon out of the tension of his convenience. This year, if you want, and this is a non-negotiable, And I know this is not maybe emotionally satisfying. I have other points that will be more emotionally satisfying for you. But we'll start with the the least emotionally satisfying point. This year, I believe the sine qua non of going to the depths is we have to build up a tolerance for inconvenience in our life if we're serious about being launched out into the depths. Can I get an amen to that? What's fascinating to this, um, how do I say this? One author says it like this, um, and I'm riffing off of her. She describes our religious landscape, especially with Generation Z and millennials, and she basically says this. It's not like we're becoming less religious. We're actually becoming more religious in a secular society. And she goes, it's this weird paradox and it's, it's very complex, and she breaks it down among other scholars that I've read, and we can't get into that tonight, but she essentially describes, and this is kind of my metaphor, that the religious landscape of anywhere from those who are 17 to 30 is something like this. It's like a, a um, buffet-style religion. Have you ever been to, been to a buffet before? I remember we used to have North Chuck Wagon, and so we would go out after every Sunday service, and we would go... 
And, uh, and I loved it because you had the ice cream section over here. You had the salad bar over there, right? You had all the meats right here, right? And then you had all the potato salad, and then you had all the other stuff. Like, how many of you love potato salad, right? And the pasta you had. I mean, you basically had all of that. Well, what's happened is we've tre treated, and again, there's, there's, I understand where um, people are coming from, and I'm not being critical here. I'm just being descriptive. Is we've treated religion like a buffet-style kind of a thing. So we have kind of like, again, and this is rooted in this idea that we can have it all, people. We can have all the experience that we could possibly want, right? So we can have a little bit of self-help Buddhism on the side. We can take some Wiccan concepts and we can incorporate them into our life. We can take some maybe post-evangelical thoughts that focus on a cruciformed Jesus, incorporate that into our belief system. Then we could take some post-Durkhemian, don't even worry about that is, sociology, and incorporate that into our ethics and how we live. We could take some wacko eschatology, and we could incorporate that into our lives. And what we do is we basically create this DI, was a DIY project kind of self-styled religious experience. And what happens is we haven't become less religious. We've become more religious. We're like those vel velociraptors that just simply want more in life. And what we do is we root our religious experience in our feeling and, ex and then in our experience and in ourself. And that ultimately becomes our authority, which leads us down the road and begins to shape our decisions which leads us to the point where we give in to any tension that is presented or we try to avoid all tensions. Here we have in verse, verses 2 through 6-ish, we have Peter who is being contested by Jesus. He's not being contested because he's a bad guy. He's not being contested because the Satan is around. It is the word of God that is pulling Peter out of his comfort, out of his um, convenience, so that he can go into the depths. So what is, what is um, contesting him? Well, this idea of contesting is rooted in just his ordinary day. And this is what I'm just going to be really clear with you right now about, I think, what we have to do moving forward in this next season if, if you want to be launched into the depths. We have to take our ordinary life and we have to surrender it to Jesus. We have to be willing to sweat drops of blood when it comes to tension. What does that mean? When we don't want to follow the word of Jesus because we prefer to do something else, we have to be willing to tolerate that tension and learn the art and the words of one scholar of sweating drops of blood. What does that mean? I want to describe that really quick. One scholar I won't mention him. He says this. There will be a day that, he said this about 50 years ago. There will be a day that will come when Christians will either have to be a mystic or an atheist. Some of you are like, okay, is there another option there? Like most of, most of us would say atheism for me is intellectually, um, it's, it's unsatisfying or emotionally unsatisfying, right? It just doesn't make sense of our world. But some of you are saying, like, okay, what do you mean by being a mystic? Does that mean that I have to be, like, some weird guy that goes up in the mountains and whatever, right? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is if we want to be followers of Jesus, we're going to have to be willing to build up a tolerance, is what I'm saying, to tension. And this is, in his words, we have to be willing at times to sweat blood in a garden just like Jesus so as to remain true to our commitments, our personal integrity, and the things that Jesus asks of us. Can I get an amen? amen. He goes on to say Jesus was hated 
but he hated no one. He was met by anger, but he did not respond in anger. He was killed by jealousy, but he was jealous of and hurt no one. He was on the receiving end of murderous anger, jealousy, and hatred, but he never passed them on to others. Instead, he carried hatred, anger, jealousy, and wound long enough. He tolerated the tension. He didn't avoid the tension. He didn't avoid the conflict. He didn't whine and complain and then, you know, try to like, I can't, I gotta, I gotta escape. Jesus was not an escape artist. Jesus, when it got tough, wasn't like, oh, the tough get going, right? He's not a stoic, but Jesus confronted the tough and the difficult times, and he carried the tension in his body long enough, and I love this, until he was able to transform them into forgiveness, compassion, and love. Only, I love this, someone who has already sweated real blood to remain true to what is the highest and best will be able to look at his or her own murderers and say, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. This is a non-negotiable for launching out into the depths, into the world of miracles. If you want more power of God, if you want more Jesus, come on somebody, if you want more authority, you gotta preach me down here because I'm my throat, I'm losing my voice here. If you want more purpose, right? If you want the shalom and the peace that God has for you, you cannot escape the tension, you can't avoid the conflict, you have to embrace it by God's grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit, he will help you. And as you stay in that tension, something will happen to your mind and something will happen to your heart and something will happen to your soul. Come on, somebody. And you'll get through it on the other, and the, on the other side of that, you, you, you'll, you'll shock yourself. You will come to the realization that you're like, oh my gosh, I am a new creation. I think the reason why we have incredible camp meetings, but for some, we can't carry the presence of Jesus back into our world is because we don't know how to handle the tension. We would rather stay at camp like Peter Right on the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are having a little conversation. They're talking about the future. And what does Peter say? Peter's like, man, I just want to stay here. I don't want to go back. Everyone else sucks. Life sucks, right? Come on. I just, I want to stay here. I want to stay at the lake. I want the wind. Give me some more fishing. Can I get an amen? Let's go hunt for Bigfoot. No, nothing. Right? Let's, let's stay. Like, let's stay away from everything else, I'm realizing that Jesus has not called us to escape the world. He's called us to embrace the tension. And when we do that, God works through us in miraculous ways. And in a very strange way, that is how God saves the world. That is how God saves the world. And I want you to hear this again. I've been a little bit redundant on purpose, but please hear me. Our dominant framework as a secular culture insists, or we could even say it this way, invites us to avoid tension and to resolve it whenever possible. So when you have an opportunity for, like in the words of Christopher Hitchens, the famous anti-theist, he said, anytime you have an opportunity for sex, take it. Anytime you have an opportunity for power, take it. Anytime you have an opportunity for money, take it. Anytime you have an opportunity for whatever fits your fancy, take it. In other words, he's saying, avoid the tension. God will give authority to those who can carry the tension. Even when they're washing nets and they're wiped out and they're like, okay, I've been doing this for four hours and I don't know why you're doing this. This, this, this doesn't make sense, Jesus. But okay, you can get in my boat. And then Jesus gets in the boat and preaches the hell out of everybody, and then he looks back at Peter and says, okay, I don't want you to wash your nets. I want you to go out into the deep, 
And then Peter's response is, that doesn't make sense. I've been fishing for, you know, a long time now. Jesus, you're a carpenter and you're an incredible teacher, but we were out there all night. What are you, what are you telling me, right? This is inconvenient. This doesn't make sense. There's too much tension. I don't like the conflict. Ah, right? Feel that. Feel the contestability, but then I love this. Peter goes, nevertheless, at your word. I don't feel it. I want to do such and such. I want to kill time. I would rather watch this Netflix episode rather than spend time in my word. I would rather just do the the easy thing rather than the hard thing. Right? But Peter, I'm sure that's where he was at. But Peter, and we don't know how and... uh, and why necessarily he made this shift. But he said, Master, nevertheless, I'm going to, I'm just going to follow you and I'm going to, I'm going to do what you're telling me. Right? I think if we could start there, everything changes in our life. You with me? Second thing. Number one, you can't have it all, which means you got to learn to live within the tension. That means sometimes it, life and following Jesus is going to be inconvenient. But know that even though things, things don't make sense and you have conflict in your life, Jesus is still right there with you, right? And the longer you stay in that tension, the longer you say no to the wrong use of sex, the longer you say no to the wrong use of power. Come on, somebody. The longer you say no to the things that dehumanize our lives, the greater the transformation that happens. And I hate this phrase, but on the soul level. How many of you want more depths in your life like that? On the soul level. It happens when we apply number one. Number two, you have to share. You have to, you have to, you have to. You have to answer the question, who has the authority in your life? Who has the authority? The ultimate question that gives shape to meaning and purpose and hope and why you and I are here right now, right? The ultimate question is, who has the authority? In fact, that question is at the bottom of everything. Everything from ethics, which is how you live your life, to eschatology, to how you see your future, to what you do with your time every single day, to the relationships that you get in, to the things that you watch on on YouTube, right? Because you guys don't watch TV anymore, right? Or whatever. Just the life that you live at the bottom of everything Is the question that you have answered, who really has the authority? In fact, every habit in our lives, at the root of it, at the root of it, is an answer to the question of who is really in charge of the cosmos. I know that, I know we don't think like that. But you better start thinking like that because that's on an unconscious level. That's why you do what you do because you've made, for many of us, maybe an unconscious drift in answering the question of who has authority over your life. This is a little bit fresh for me, but I'm going to say it anyways. Usually I don't like to say things that I've recently been through. I like to curate my vulnerability pastors do a really good job of curating the vulnerability. But I'm going to be vulnerable in you because vulnerable with you because this is connected to what I've been going through the last seven weeks. And I'm not going to fully get into this. But I had to come face to face with the question, who has authority over me? Seven weeks ago, I, um, I, 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 it's funny, crazy story. My dad calls me up one day. He goes, Chris, uh, it's my dad. I love my dad. He is, he is the rock 
He never changes. He's always full of faith. Nothing, nothing gets to him. It is absolutely amazing. So he calls me up and he says, interesting news, Chris. And he's really cheering. I'm like, oh, this is going to be awesome. What? Give me some good news. Because everyone around us was, get, was getting sick. And he goes, interesting news. I'm at the ER. And uh, they tested me, with, um, tested me positive with COVID. I'm like, huh? And uh, I was devastated, number one, for my dad. Or maybe number two for my dad. But number one, I had been with my dad for a couple days. And so probably... The, my real issue was like, oh, God, oh, God, what's going to happen to me? Well, over the next few days, um, I started to feel the effects of COVID-19. And um, it's, it, it, it was a real thing. I, I lost my taste and smell. Um, I got to the point where uh, I had shortness of breath at one point uh, at an eight straight and I'm saying this because I have some answers, right? So I'm not just saying this and I'm going to start crying and then I'm going to exit the room, okay? <laughs> I, I, I feel like the Holy Spirit is speaking to me, but I also think this is a word for everyone in this room. At one point, I did not sleep for eight days. And I was losing my mind. Psychologists call it disassociation. And it's the feeling that you're outside of your body. I have never felt this kind of terror and panic so I'm going to be really honest with you. I got one, two, happened to me two times. It wasn't an audible voice, but two times I felt a demonic presence come to me. I, it wasn't audible, but it came to my thoughts and says, I, this voice said something like this, and maybe something, some of you have heard this before. I promise I wasn't doing cocaine that night, okay? But I was willing to try anything. Let's move on. I don't care. Give me, I don't care. I'm kidding. Stop it. Some of you. I'm not giving you license, all right? The devil's a liar. But this voice came to me and said, I'm going to get you. Is your pastor, 44 years old, with seven children, at the beginning of 2020, filled with hope for this year and for our church. I felt this twice it came to me. And this voice, I'm just going to be honest, was ferocious, it was ferocious. I said, I'm going to get you. I didn't sleep for eight days. At one point, because I, it was hard to breathe, I had, am, am I being dramatic, Kel, about this? She's like, no, I'm not being dramatic. I had to go to the ER. On my way to the ER, I literally thought I was dying, and I was writing a note to my son, Quincy, and Wesley, and to my wife, how much I loved them and what books I wanted them to read and everything like that. And the rest of my kids, whatever their names are. <laughs> I'm kidding. I kid. I love my children. I love all 17,000 of my children. Uh, so for four weeks, four weeks, I dealt with fear and panic and anxiety like I've never experienced before. When you can't breathe, it is, it's the weirdest it's, it's, it's a trigger for all sorts of anxiety and fear. And then I begin to realize at the root of the anxiety that I was experiencing was the question, and I had to answer it as your pastor. What will become my rock bottom reality that will define me? Will it be anxiety and COVID-19? Am I going to surrender to this fear and to this sickness and admit that it has authority over me, I had to make a decision. COVID-19, do you have authority over me? Or does Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, has authority over me? I gotta be honest with you. I, I've never experienced something like this before in my life. And I would declare, and I was praying, and I was thanking my way through this, and I began to realize that this wasn't just a me problem. It was, this is a generational problem. At the root of our anxiety, our fear, our depression, our sickness, our loneliness, our porn addiction, our shame, our bad relationships, our bad decisions, the sin that, that we engage in. God doesn't hate you tonight, but all of those things at the root of it is ultimately you are 
answering the question that Jesus is not sovereign over your life. So let me give you a backdrop, a little background um, of this passage in Luke chapter 5. It basically launches us into a whole section that shows us the outrageous authority of Jesus. Here we have Jesus is, is emphasized as the Lucan Davidic king. Jesus in the gospel of Luke is the king of the poor. He's the king of the nobodies. He redefines and redraws the messianic map we see in the gospel of Luke. We have a high Christology. I love this. Jesus, Luke tells us, is the spirit-drenched human who is fully human and fully God. Can I get an amen? Amen. He's fully drenched in the spirit, and I want to talk more about this, but I can't tonight. Fully drenched in the power of God. And then Luke 5 launches us all the way to the end of Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 50, and shows us the outrageous authority that Jesus has. He has authority. Just please bear with me. And don't think this is prosaic. He has authority over sickness, not just someone who has a little (coughs) cough, right? He has authority over sickness, serious sickness and leprosy. He has authority over demons, right? He exercises demons. He has authority over death itself. In fact, we get to the point where Jesus says that he is Lord over the Sabbath, right? What is Jesus saying? Jesus is taking the most sacred holiday out of the Jewish calendar, the Sabbath, and he is saying that I have authority over it. That would be like someone going on national TV and saying that, hey guys, you thought the 4th of July was about the Declaration of Independence 244 years ago. No, no, no. The Declaration of Independence of the 4th of July is about me. I have the authority over the 4th of July. In fact, I have authority over America itself. So Jesus says he has authority over the Sabbath. In fact, we see throughout this section, Jesus claims authority in outrageous ways. The crowds, they see Jesus, and what do they say? He has authority. What did all the religious leaders ask Jesus as he approaches Jerusalem? Jesus, where do you get your cool teaching techniques? Where do, you, where do you get your power? No, no, no. They ask him, where do you get your authority? I've realized that the synoptic tradition, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, all at the very bottom of everything, is all about telling us who has the authority over not just your soul, but everything about your life. And the Gospels, you don't have to believe this, but as followers of Jesus, and if you want to be launched into the depth, you have to answer this question. You have to immerse yourself in this question. This has to become your rock-bottom reality. It has to be your defining reality. And you have to begin to believe that ultimately it is Jesus that has the final say over my mind, over my depression, over this shame that I'm feeling, over how I feel, over this addiction that I have in my life. Ultimately, if we want the depths and we want to break out the cages, this has to be our starting week. This last week was Shark Week. How many of you watched Shark Week? Like we love Shark Week, and we, we kind of make it a big thing in our house. Um, but there was one episode that I really love, and it was the, the Will Smith episode. I don't know if you saw it. Uh, do you guys know even know who Will Smith is? All right, okay, okay, okay. So it was, it was a, I liked it. He was talking about a lot of different things. He was talking about his fear of sharks. He was terrified of sharks. And I loved it. And this is what he said. And I think this is an example of what I'm trying to say. He said, if I'm going to go down to the very bottom and free swim or free dive with bull sharks and tiger sharks and lemon sharks, right? So essentially that, that's what he was going to do. He was supposed to go to the very bottom and free swim with no cage with tiger sharks. He said, if I'm going to do that, I want to make sure that I have the greatest expert in the world with me. The Gospels tells us something really interesting about us, that when it comes to being human, we're pretty clumsy, 
and we're pretty amateurish, but the good news is, is that we have Jesus who is the expert over creation. In fact, he tells, what does he tell Peter? He says in verse 5, put out into the deep, put your nets out, and what happened? They caught a large number of fish. What is Luke telling us here in Luke chapter 5? Jesus is Lord over the lake. So if Jesus is Lord over the lake in microcosm, he is Lord over the cosmos in macrocosm, which means that he is Lord over every single thing in between the lake and the cosmos. He's over matter. He's over your future. He's over your marriage in the future, right? He's over your psychology. He's over the decisions that you make. Jesus is in charge. He transforms food. He wins the victory over death itself. He turns death back on itself and launches new creation. He rebukes a fierce Mediterranean squall like it was a toddler. Who is this that we serve? Can I just tell you, Jesus is not the Ned, the, like a Ned Flanders kind of archetype, right, in The Simpsons, like some goody-two-shoe guy. Jesus is not a pale, wandering rabbi teaching homespun wisdom about the kingdom. Jesus is not a self-help guru. Please help me. I'm tired right now, but go with me. He's not a Marxist revolutionary or a French literary theorist on how to deconstruct stuff, right? John tells us, and Mark tells us, and Luke tells us, and Matthew tells us that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's over it all. He has authority over all things. Really quick, Mark 8. I think, do we have that, Mark 8? Sorry, Matthew 8, excuse me. Matthew 8. Are you still with me? I know I've gone just a little bit longer. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to land this plane in one hour and 32 minutes. But Matthew 8 says this. And this gives us an example of what really is at stake, not only in this story, but what's at stake in the Gospels. Verse 5 says, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying, paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to those who followed him, truly I tell you that no one in Israel... I have found such great faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this end to the centurion, Jesus said, go and let it be done for you as you have what? Believed. Believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. I'm going to be really honest with you. This story was so prosaic for me growing up. I would skip through it. I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. Oh, it's kind of a cool story. It never grabbed me until a couple weeks ago. I begin to realize that at the roots of belief was the issue of who has authority. The centurion, and Jesus commends him, the centurion understands that Jesus has the authority Therefore, he puts his trust in Jesus that he can heal. Therefore, Jesus responds and heals the centurion's servant. Think about that logic. In the words of one pastor that I just heard recently, which I think is beautifully put, you and I don't have a faith problem. We don't have a doubt problem. We don't have an anxiety problem. We have an authority problem. The problem is not just about ethics, it's not just about our future. Our problem is usually a problem with who is really in charge. Is it the scientists? Well, we all know we can't trust them. Is it the politicians? Ah, who knows, right? Right? Is it the pastors? I hope you can trust them a little bit more, but hey, we're all flawed, right? Who can we trust? 
I love that. Thank you for that. Who can we trust is the question that we have to answer. And if we allow Jesus to form us in a new way of seeing his authority, we will go to new depths in him. Amen? Number three, really quick. So let me just, I'm a teacher right now. Let me remind you, we got to be okay with tension if we want to go to the depths. Number two, we have to understand that everything is about authority, the authority of Jesus. And I'm going to pray that Jesus is going to give us a revelation of his authority over our lives. Are you guys still with me? Number three, and I love this. You find this in verse back in Luke chapter 5. Verse, I believe it's verse 7, I think. Maybe not. It could be verse, yeah, verse 7. After they receive this miracle, and their nets, it says, are breaking. Everyone say their nets are breaking. That's verse 6. And then verse 7, it says, they signal to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so they could begin to sink. So you got to know Jesus' authority, that he's over the cosmos. You have to be okay with tension. Number three, you have to realize that we need each other or we will die. It says, after this miracle, the nets are breaking. Right? In other words, Simon, on his own, did not have the capacity to contain this miracle. Peter was not big enough to carry the mission of Jesus alone. Simon was not big enough to handle the authority that was happening, the miracle that was happening, the mission that Jesus was calling Peter to. You and I today, tonight, let me just say this, are not big enough to handle all that God wants to do through us alone. We need each other. Can I get an amen? amen. We need each other. Robert Putman, famous, famous historian, sociologist, I quote him often. He says, we are no longer a nation of believers, but we're also no longer a nation of belongers. People don't know how to belong. And that's what's killing us in this pandemic. And I believe that it's actually doing something to the soul of America. And I think it's showing so many people who thought that they could handle life and carry life alone that they actually might need people. We are in this together. We can't go to the depths. We can't handle the authority. We can't do what God has called us to do. We can't get the more. Are you hearing me? We can't, we can't see a move of God. We can't participate in a revival downtown, in the streets, at Boise State. Come on, in our churches, in our region, if we don't learn to do life together. In fact, I think there's, a, there's built-in safety in being together. I'll say it this way. God has, I think, built into community, built into the structure of community itself, a kill switch. So every time we come together, God, he does something to anxiety that he doesn't always do when we're alone. There's a built-in kill switch to the things that we're carrying and we're not telling anybody about by simply showing up and being together on Sunday and showing up and being together in our small groups. Are you hearing me? There's this kill switch. When we come together, that's when God brings death to death and anxiety and fear and hopelessness and sickness and death and shame. And the power of addictions, right? This is why we need community. I, I'm, I'm getting to the point. Have community or suffer the consequences. And I think the consequences are eventual death. No, 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 no. I don't, some of you don't believe me. That's all right. 
let me just say this. This is from one scholar. He, he's um, accounting, making observations about uh, the need for community. And this is what he said. He observes um, a recovering alcoholic friend. He's having a conversation with him. And this alcoholic friend once explained to him why he goes regularly to AA meetings. And this is what his friend told him. He goes, I know, and I know for sure. Everyone say, I know for sure. That if I don't go to meetings regularly, I'll begin to drink again. And he goes this, it's funny. Everyone say, it's funny. funny. The meetings are always the same. The same things get said over and over and over and over again. This is, I love it. And he goes, everything is totally and absolutely predictable. I know everything that will be said by everyone. He goes, everyone coming there knows it too. Also, I don't go to those meetings to be a nice person. I go there not to have some therapy. I go there to stay alive. I go there because if I don't, I will eventually destroy myself. There is a built-in kill switch that happens to anxiety and pain and everything that we're going and carrying through that doesn't always happen when we're alone. You and I need each other. And nothing against AA meetings because I think they're great, but this is an AA meeting. This isn't the church of the living God. And I hope we say some fresh things, but yeah, I kind of say the same things. Someone came up to me one time and said, Chris, you kind of say the same thing over and over. You're creative. You talk a lot, a lot about culture and philosophy. Sometimes I don't really care for that. And I said, shut up. <laughs> but then he goes, I realize you always take us back to Jesus. Yeah. Always take us back to Jesus. You have a problem? Let's get together and let's talk about it with Jesus. We can't carry life. Let's come together and let's talk about it with Jesus. If we need or if we're suffering from the lack of God's presence, let's come together and let's get the presence of Jesus together. Man, I was hoping that somebody would get really excited. So you got to learn to build up tolerance for tension. You have to recognize that you don't have a faith problem here tonight, a doubt problem tonight here, an anxiety problem here tonight. You have a problem with who's really in charge. The question is, ultimately, when it comes down to, we think we're in charge. That is the unconscious root of anxiety that I discovered in my life. I thought that I was in charge, and if I got the right doctor and the right medicine, that I could take care of myself. And I begin to realize COVID-19, there's no answers. Many people can't figure it out. I'm not making a political statement, but I had to come to the point that God, okay, I have to surrender to what I already know in my head. And I know it's in my heart. And it's what I preach to all these young people. And what I preach at church every single Sunday that you are in charge of human history. We have to surrender to that. Three, we have to do life together or die. And I want, I want you to feel that. Or die. Feel that. You cannot be a part of a move of God alone. Number four, you still with me? Verse eight says, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knee, uh, knees saying, it's after he had the miracles, the miracle. He said, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he, and all, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And, and so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners of Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. Four, if you want to be a person of depth, this might be the most important thing outside of 
surrendering to the authority of Jesus. Do not lie. I'm going to say it one more time. I, I'm, I'm pausing because I want to make this as dramatic and weird as possible. Do not lie to yourself. <laughs> 